You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Kirk, 2021 is upon me. It's upon you. It's upon me. It is upon us all, isn't it? It is, but my 2021 season kicks off this morning. Why is that? Well, because I took my week off after that ultra. Ah. And now we had talked about how we were training to get ready for training. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm ready for training. As in you are starting your new build and you are officially training with purpose. Yes. Starting today. Yeah, everything's progressive in nature now. No more hodgepodge just to start getting doses of of impact or intensity or duration. Everything from here on out is scripted. You know, I was just talking to somebody about this for myself because I've been hodgepodge and I intend to be mm-hmm. until about the end of February. Well, I'll probably take a week off and then start a real purposeful build come like March. So mm-hmm. you're ahead of me, man. Uh, do you have your weeks scripted out moving yeah. forward? Yeah. I do. How, how far? I'm scripted through, I think, the weekend of, uh, the last weekend of May. Yeah. I like to script, like, sometimes I go back and forth between, like, a month, like, just go a month at a time and see how your body's doing, or at least get a vague outline or a skeleton six months out. I have a framework through the end of May, and I have scripted for the next eight weeks. Yeah. So I'm going to get to the end of that, and then I will script the next week based off what I learned from the previous eight, but following the framework that I've set out. It's basically back built from from the first week of May, targeting the first, what I think, uh, I think I'm going to have a three race block from late April to mid-May. And really, you should you should build towards something, whether it happens or not, because yep. you need to start having some purpose and some sort of scheme to your your training. So I like that. Mm-hmm. What are the first three then? Obviously, Montana. Uh, well, the first would actually be, assuming it happens, Nationals Park Stadium. Mm. And then three weeks later, Montana. And then two weeks later, City Field. So that would be my first race block. And then I will take a down week and then basically hit another periodized block. So this is a periodized block moving into it. It's a three-part block. That makes sense. I'm excited. This is my first build build. You know what, though? It's actually good. It's it's a good point to make that we we always preach like purpose on this podcast and have at least like a general plan to the phase you're in uh, with your training. But I actually would argue that coming back from injury and really having to listen to your body day in and day out and almost intuitively train like what has lost the most and what do I need to play with a little? It's kind of okay to do the hodgepodge thing a little bit coming back from injury if you have the luxury of time. And then once you feel like you got your wheels under you in multiple modalities, you, you're descending and you're climbing and you're flats and a little speed and a little threshold, then you reset and then go back to a real build. I think that's actually like a really smart approach, to be honest. Thank you. And, and I, it identified some things that I don't have to do. My plan was that I was going to have to reestablish like foot speed and ground contact and getting off the ground. My balance I knew wasn't going to be great in terms of fast 
our short ground contact time. And I thought that I was really going to struggle to get to fast, efficient, high end running. And then I was going to have to be able to extend that out over time. So I was going to start working almost like a sprinter or a mid distance runner with short, quick intervals with long rest. And when I was testing out those shoes and doing my hodgepodge training, I realized my top end is kind of still there. The mm -hmm. lifting kept me strong and explosive. The, uh, the assault bike workouts meant that I could still like fire a little bit, but my ground contact still wasn't great. And mm. so like that one workout, I, I broke five, three times in the workout. I thought it was going to take 12 weeks before I could break five in a mile, you know? So suddenly I realized I was there without having to put in a block of training, get to the end of it and realize, well, I probably didn't need that. So now I get to skip that and move forward, still focusing on ground contact and form and mechanics and, and balance, but while moving into more of a aerobic build and stamina based extension rather than doing the base speed work that I thought I was going to have to do. Yeah. Your, your work is going to have to be on that stay power as you, as oh, you yeah. Found. yeah. 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 Well, I think it's just okay. Like myself, I think I'm doing what excites me, what I intuitively feel like my foot can handle and my body's kind of wants right now. And I think that's okay. If we have now, if we had a, a race in three months or two months, it would be completely different. I would have to scheme things a little bit uh, different, but I think that's, I think that's all right when you have the luxury of time. So I'll be curious uh, how that build goes, Bracken. Oh man, I'm excited. And again, the hardest thing is going to be to keep being a student of the game and not being my, like, don't get caught up being, being the boss of my training. Mm -hmm. like, in the past, I always dabble. I always tinker. I always get, go off on tangents. It's, keep taking notes on our own podcast and keep sticking mm. to the principles and hold myself accountable. She got your tangents out of the way this last uh, four months. Yeah. And the three years prior. <laughs> and the three years prior. You ran 10. Yeah. I ran 10 miles on Saturday. I'm dealing with a little chaffage bracken in the nether regions and I haven't experienced this in quite a while. Why, why is it resistance <laughs> to impact or is it something else? Well, my foot felt great on the run. So I, I wasn't talking about your foot. I know you're not. You're very curious. Um, here's the deal. I've been doing this huge strength block, this five by program, and my lifts are very strong right now. I got a good base strength for the upcoming season so I can slowly break it all down, you know, by championship season. But damn it, Bracken, these man thighs have expanded, I believe. And uh, I haven't put in a 10 mile run in, gosh, six months or seven months. And it was just a little too much back and forth, I think. On these, uh, you know, squats, squats and deadlifts are catching up with the inner thighs. I think Brad. you actually gained circumference on your legs, and your thighs are rubbing more than they used to. Oh, 100 percent, yeah, yeah. I, I don't got that thigh gap no more, brother. So, anyways, so ten miles was enough to uh, to put me in a little bit of hurt. So I've been walking a little bull legged for two days, <laughs> trying to avoid. I, you know, I gained about ten pounds. Um, Mostly, I mean, it's got to be like nine of it's got to be lean weight, I would say, from just going on heavy programs. And that base strength will stay with me. And then as I amp up my volume, I think I'll lose some of it. But I didn't think about the inner thighs on that run, Brack. And I was thinking, you know, my foot was going to be the big problem afterwards, or my shins or my calves were going to be beat up. Little did I know. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that you get to experience the things that you experience secondhand as a coach, where you now have your body at a different place and you're experiencing rubbing and chafage in places that you didn't when you were, when you were thinner. And that's, mm -hmm. it's interesting. This is, it's a, it's not glamorous, but it's a part of running that people oftentimes who are already running, forget about when you first start out and you have excess weight, mm -hmm. chafage is a huge issue. I don't think it's chub, man. I think it's just, I, I just uh, said extra weight. I didn't say. Okay. Well, right. But, but regardless it is. Yeah. So, and I, and I didn't wear my underwear. I didn't think, I didn't think about it. Like I just, you know, 
next time I'm going to be real ready to go. What, what's your anti-chafing routine? No, there is none. I've never had to deal with it. What if you were going like before Tahoe or before if you're going to run an ultra? Because I just went through this with Tennessee. Nothing. I had six hours on feet and it looked like it might drizzle. So I had a routine that I go to for my long stuff. You have nothing. I've, no, I've never had to deal with this, but these inner thighs have become massive. So I'm going to have to start. First of all, body glide every hinge point. Yeah. Any particular rubbing area, I body glide just, I paint myself with body So glide. under the armpits, in the gooch there. Yeah. I. Any, any place you could rub, any seam, yeah. any place where skin could touch skin, body glide. Mm. My biggest, the, the biggest, the biggest problem I'll have that I've had is, is just underneath the armpits. If you're running shirtless and you get the yep. salt deposits there in the su sweaty summer days. Um, but other than that, yeah, well, uh, I'll get back to you guys on, on the status down there, but uh, I'll come up with a new routine. Well, good luck to you as well. Thank you, Bracken. What do, what do we want to talk about today? So it struck me recently through questions that people were sending to the podcast. But then again, with myself, because I've been, I've tried to be so introspective with my training because I just don't want to waste any more of my, I would say prime fading prime athletic years. Like I don't have years left that I can just count on getting better just because I'm growing as a, a human. That's not happening anymore physically. So now it has to be smart. And I realized that all I'm doing is I, is I'm spending all my time in the weakness column mm -hmm. and all right, I'm going to pause. That's not the episode we're doing. No, I thought you were, <laughs> we're doing the Q&A. Yeah, I thought you were going to maybe preface the fact that we were we were going to do that next week, but this week we're going to hold off. No, I'm just going to start over. <laughs> no. I, 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 I was just letting you go. I thought you're going to. I was going to. I was going to go right into the, the not Q and A. Well, Kirk, I've been going back through a lot of our questions because well, one thing I do whenever we get a question from someone, the first thing I do is I click on their profile to get a sense of who they are. Because sometimes it's a question that I think, well, that's kind of foolish, or we've talked about that, and you realize it's someone who is new to running. Mm -hmm. Or you get a question that sounds really high level, and then you click, and it's like this Olympic trials marathoner who's asking questions. So one, it's cool to get a background of their knowledge, and two, it's cool to see this is the wide variety of people that we, we have listening at this point. But yeah. we, you and I have, in doing this, stumbled into a, a backlog of questions. So it's just time. We've been five weeks without a Q&A. We have over 30 questions that we haven't even responded to, or we've said, hey, we're going to address this in a Q&A, and we haven't done a Q&A. So. Well, listen, this is not a cheap way out of an episode, folks. This is real. I, I looked at my phone. I have 31 in my save, 31 screenshots in my saved alone, just me. I don't know if you have any. Yeah. Or... And these aren't screenshots of questions that I'm going to get to this question later. It's we read the question, told the person, hey this is such a good question or this would affect so many people that we're going to address this in a Q&A. This is yeah. a fraction of the questions that you've answered. And these are always topics that we don't necessarily think about ourselves or we think about making an entire episode out of. And so I think these Q&As are some of my favorites. I think most people get a lot out of these because it covers a wide range of topics and we're due. This is since November 5th. We've gotten like 31 plus relevant questions that we couldn't just give a quick response to. So it's time, brother. It is. And and we, from time to time, and this came up during the Ross episode afterwards with the comments, from time to time are told that we skew towards the elite side, mm -hmm. which is absolutely true. Yeah. But this is the day that balances us out. This is the questions mm -hmm. for the people, from the people, by the people, right? So uh, let's, let's answer them. Yeah. And we do get a few comments about... Um 
about just sort of focusing on the male side of sport as well. And damn it, I wish like we weren't two dudes with two dudes perspective that had lived in two dudes bodies for 30 plus years. I wish we had some female perspective on issues and we're going to work on that for you, but we're we just have two coming up, Kirk. We, yes, we do. We got, we got some women in, in the docket. Don't you guys worry. Should I ask the first question? I'll just roll them out since I got all the screenshots. Roll okay? Yeah. Um, this is from a, an athlete of mine, Natasha Manzel. Uh, and I think this is actually a really good one. It's a longer one, but bear with me, okay? Um, it says, hey, guys, I have a follow-up question to one of uh, one of the ones in today's podcast talking about if it's okay to go zone three on easy or we should stick to zone two. I'm the exact opposite. She's one of the people who go really easy on her easy days. I'm majority zone one and occasionally tip into low to mid zone two if there's some elevation, yada, yada. But she's always averaging zone one on her easy day. She's wondering, is she going too easy and missing out on aerobic development because she's scaling too far on the easy side? Or is she cool where she's at? Great question. That is a really good question. So is there such a thing as too easy? I think there actually is if all of your work is too easy. I certainly go too easy on my recovery days. But on my day prior to workout, I go still easy, but it's at the higher end of easy by the end of the run. So I would say I average high zone two for my aerobic work, but the first half is low zone two and the second half or second two, second third or something like that is, or the last third is probably low zone three to, to mid zone three. I progress throughout the run generally. But the, the one question I always ask is, are you improving? Her, her, her answer is yes. Yeah. And I know that because you and I have discussed her and we have high hopes for her 2021 mm -hmm. season. But I, I think that if you're improving, then you don't have to move other pieces right now because you get to save those other improvements for later. And you can kind of lengthen your your curve, really. So that's my long rambling answer. What about you? That wasn't rambling at all. You nailed it. I, I think if all of your work, if you are not having quality days in there, I think you're probably min missing some benefit if you're just sticking in zone one or low zone two every day. But if you're having polarized training and you are having quality workout sessions that are very demanding, um, I don't think you're going too easy. I will say that I don't think you're going to do yourself any harm by sitting in anywhere in zone two, in my opinion, on recovery days. I totally agree. So like if you go up and even you're in mid or high zone two and that's where your average is or that's where you're sitting, uh, you don't have to worry. I think you're going to do the recovering you need. However, like sometimes there's the mental side of things where you like to just go look around and enjoy the day and that's where you do your best recovery and shuffling along. And, and so I don't think you can go wrong especially if you have real workouts in your in your schedule. I think that a lot of it comes down to the, the density of your quality work as well. If you're doing the two quality day approach, then you can stand to spend more time in zone two and zone three in between because you have so many days that aren't quality. But if you're hitting three quality workouts a week and maybe a long run, you can say stay low zone two all week long in between that because you're getting all your intensity elsewhere. Yep. It's a good point. And she is on like the two and a half quality day a week plan, I'll call it. So so I say she's doing great. Yeah. We don't hear that too often though. I, I've seen a string of people struggling with going easy enough. It's usually I'm always mid to high zone three. Should I bump down to two? I, ra I ra you rarely hear, should I bump up to two? Yeah, exactly. Um, she has a follow-up uh, question here. Um, an extension question she calls it would be after flat speed sessions, I am particularly sluggish the next day, whereas after hill reps, I'm often feeling great the next day, even if the max heart rate is the same in both. Logic would tell me I'd be more sore after hills, but it's the opposite. 
I'm interested if that's common and if there's a physiological reason or is it just a weird quirk in my legs compared to others? What are your thoughts on that? I think my my muscles are more tired the next day after hills, but my overall body is more shot after flat speed work. 100%. Alignment doesn't come into play uphill. Mm -mm. It really doesn't. Stability doesn't come into play very often. It's just power output. On the flat ground, there are more moving pieces because now your forward lean isn't done for you by the hill rising up towards you. You know, you're on a hill, it's really hard to, to overstride. Mm -hmm. you know, on a ground, all your mechanical deficiencies come out and it makes everything work. And then the next day you're exhausted. Somebody sent us something. We brought this up in a past episode wondering what the force reduction was as the incline went up on a treadmill or, vi or on a natural hill. Thank <laughs> you to that person who sent that to us. We never actually gave you that. Thank you. And it, it's been studied. And so the impact force of going uphill is so much less. And if you're running flat, you have higher impact force. And then if you're running hard on flat terrain, you have even higher impact force. Um, so that's obviously in play. And something, a nuance with Natasha, like I don't have her in some of these workouts. We're not descending very hard. You know, it's more focus on the uphill recover on the down. And so, of course, you're going to feel more springy, I believe, after that. Because honestly, no matter how high the heart rate, how much lactate you build up in your legs, uh, the pounding, I mean, at the grade she's going might be half of what it is on soft ter or on flat terrain. So I actually think you're in the majority. If you're descending hard, it's a different story. Um, then those hips are really going to get beat up for sure. And you're going to have some residual, but I think that's, I'm going to say normal. Mm -hmm. I, I think so too. And downhill and uphill are interesting because uphill, your muscles get tired, but you're taking no impact. Downhill, you take impact, but you're not having to just create all you don't have to generate all the power going downhill gravity does most of it for you you have to keep driving but you're not you're, you're not you're not the full force producer where on flat ground you're taking the impact and you have to produce every ounce of power to move and so i think it's just they compound against each other yeah i agree so i think that's uh i think you are in the majority not minority natasha um brandon waters asks can you guys more specifically define the term fitness I hear it used by athletes from various disciplines, runners, OCR, CrossFit, et cetera, but it's always so vague. Or someone will say, yeah, I won the race, but my fitness wasn't where I wanted it to be. Another good question. It is. Maybe there is a physiological definition to this. I think of fitness and just how close to my present day ceiling am I right now on this day? So if you go to a race and you know, my ceiling is much higher than where I have trained to right now, then your fitness, your, your overall fitness isn't super high, but you can still win a race. Sometimes mm -hmm. there are other times you show up to the race and you know, there's not a thing I could have done to be in better shape right now. And that just tells me, am I, my fitness is really high. Fitness, a noun, the condition of being physically fit and healthy. Come on. <laughs> okay. No one tell the internet. You can't use the word in the definition. <laughs> the quality of being suitable to fulfill a particular role or task. That's the one I like. So if your yeah. role or task is racing to your to your maximum potential, mm -hmm. fitness is how close to your maximum potential are you right now? And I'm not talking 10 years from now with great training. I'm talking on this day, if everything went right in training, you did it all right. How close to that am I? I think it it is fitness. I think, yeah, is is it's obviously individual. So it is vague. But I think it's your comparison to your known top end ability or what you believe your yeah. top end ability is at time. I think that's exactly what people are referring to. So yes, you can win a race with dismal fitness if you, all the competition doesn't show up. I also like to think when people say like, hey, my fitness is okay right now, 
it's because they've experienced higher levels in the past one. Right. Um, and two, um, I lost my train of thought there. So I'm going to have you go. Okay. I'm going to get back to that one. I'm going to use the term shape to balance out what I say fitness is. You can be in really good shape and have no race fitness. Yeah. Like there are people that just stay in great shape. Their bodies look great. They are healthy, but there's no performance. I would your say body, your body looks good, but what can you do with it? Right. Right. It's the, it's the show muscle versus go muscle. Shape mm -hmm. is show muscle. Fitness is go muscle. Mm -hmm. And that's how I would define it. And that's not something you'd probably find in Webster's except for the being capable of the intended task. That that's a great way of looking at it. I remember my point now. But finish it off. You're getting old. What are you? 37? 37. Um, well, no, I'm trying to look forward at these damn questions and then my mind moves all around. So um, the one thing I will say, the difference between like if somebody says I didn't have great fitness or I have good fitness, the one way I describe that is like my ability to perform consistently, knowing like my fitness may not be great, but I might be able to one off a race, but I don't know what I'm going to get when I tell the start line. Like, ooh, like I'm kind of rolling the dice a little, I feel like, like maybe I could pop today, but also my lack of fitness may show through. Sometimes you get lucky and you fake it. Do you know what I'm talking about? And then when I say I have good fitness, it's like I told the start line and I know exactly what I'm getting that day because I'm completely dialed in. That's actually how I determine uh, by that question a little bit where my fitness is at as well, um, if that makes sense. It does. I've had races where I show up thinking, not quite sure how this is going to go. I know I'm in good shape, but like, for this race, who knows? And there's races I've showed up where I thought, I just can't see too many people beating me today. Yeah. And that's the difference between knowing you're in good shape and knowing you're super fit. And even if you have a little bit of an off day, you're still fit enough to squeak out a respectable performance. That's fitness. Yep. That's why the Atkins of the world never bomb because even on their worst day, they still have stay power. Um, Kelly Brown. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> now I'm intrigued. No, this, this is a random question for Kirk that does not award anybody any benefit. But ever since listening to the podcast and following you, I've been dying to know. When you were on The Bachelor and the other shows filming, were you able to fit in your runs? Did they give you time for that? Were you stressed about fitting in time for this? So many times while listening, I'm always wondering, oh, crap, what would he have done if he couldn't run? He was probably going crazy while filming. That's a good question because you see a lot of people throughout a reality show get in better shape. And you see an equal amount of people start to soften up throughout the show because you have unlimited booze. Do they also have unlimited weights? Um, yeah, this is not going to benefit anybody except scratch, maybe the itch of curiosity. Uh, no. So when you show up to the bachelor mansion, there's no equipment for us there. There's no gym facility. There's absolutely nothing. Um, so you either bring bands, uh, nobody can pack dumbbells or anything. So guys will pack resistance bands. They tell us there's no gym, but in the back of the mansion is this old shitty unkept backyard with long, like scrub grass and rocks and these trees that aren't taken care of. You never see it. Uh, and it's a hill. It's a downward slope. It's like a 15, 20% grade. And it's maybe 50 meters long. So um, we were allowed to use that. And so I got some nice stones that fit the bill. I got some logs and we had some rafters and some of the awnings. And so I would go up and down the hill for 30, 45, 60 minutes. I mean, a tiny little, it's all we had, a cement little sidewalk. And then we did the caveman workouts. That's what we did there. Uh, when we traveled abroad, we would stay in hotels or hostels or things like that. And we could schedule a half an hour to 45 minute gym time. We had to go alone. So we couldn't talk to the other contestants off camera. Nothing could happen. So we'd be escorted down. We'd have our 30 minute time slot. We'd get escorted back up and then another person would have their chance. So that's how we did it on the road. 
Um, half the guys said, screw it, I'm on vacation and got, you know, tubby and out of shape. And then half of us like had our morning groups. I actually let them. I would lead group workouts. Trainer side of me would come out and I'd kick butt. You never see that stuff on film, but I led group workouts on Bachelor in Paradise on the beach almost every day. Um, the girls and guys would get together. I'd put them through a workout. It was, but you, yeah, you don't see that stuff, but no equipment on that stuff either. I'm satisfied by this. I'm glad this question was asked. This is a, a peek behind the curtain. Yeah. It's just not relevant to storyline. So you never see it. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. All right. Kelly, hope you're satisfied too. I know you don't like talking about your time on the bachelor very much. I but don't mind. It's just self-serving. But I know it's been done. Like you've spent your 10,000 hours having to be in front of a camera discussing this crap. So like, I understand it, but there's a lot of it that's still really intriguing to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I don't mind talking about it. If the questions arise. Uh, Adam Carey says how to train for the back half of distance event, marathon or ultra. Um, last year, age group podium times at Spartan ultra were only 15 minutes per mile. So it's not top end speed. How do I train for that back half without putting in the eight to 10 hour workout to get there? Or is that really what I need to do? Basically, do I need to spend that much time on feet to simulate that feeling? This is the type of question we weren't getting in month one or month two. This is someone who is sifted through the info and now they're to the point where they're breaking down and fine tuning their training for performance optimization. I love it. Warms my heart, Kirk. This Mm. is this is what we like to hear. This is someone taking their training into their own hands. Awesome. Do you have thoughts on it? I do, but I just spoke, so the floor is yours. <laughs> okay. Well, the staple of the ultra world is back-to-back long days. And so you get to your second day, and neither have to be crazy long, but you get to your second day and you're already tired. So now all the quality you do is in a compromised form or fashion. Mm-hmm. This can be as simple as power hiking at high-end aerobic when you're already tired, or it can be doing a tempo run after doing a long run, or it can be a tempo run day one, long run day two. It can be back-to-back long, but it's hitting things when you're already fatigued. So that's the number one cheap hack that the ultra world uses. It's not a cheap hack though. It's become almost cliche, but Mm -hmm. people use it for a reason. You don't want to overdo it though. I don't do this every week. I every say every third, every third, maybe if you're really hitting it hard. Yeah. 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 Also the grindy workouts are great where you're hitting like marathoners. They love doing like five by three mile as a yeah. tempo, you know, where you're hitting submaximal effort many times and you're holding it, um, doing work once you're depleted. But I also don't want to underplay the power that actual intensity plays in being able to work sub-maximally that mm-hmm. I I've not done many ultras, but the ones I've done, uh, the, and the ones I've been successful at had a very purposeful speed intensity component in the buildup and they allow you to work sub-maximally when you're tired. Yeah, I agree. I was going to, you know, mention the cliche back to back every second or I like every third week. Um, but I really like preceding that because he talks about the top end speed and then you never hit that on the back end at 15 minutes per mile. So I'm a really big fan. I have a few athletes on this plan now of the Saturday morning tempo run, hit like a two mile warm up, six, eight mile tempo, two mile cool down in the afternoon, go and just put like another 60 to 90 minutes of easy time on feet and then hit that long run of like three plus hours on Sunday, maybe get some vert and get some terrain in you. And if, I don't know how you're going to get any closer other than going out and hitting one solid block of running. And even in that, if you're going to do it every, I would say three weeks, every three weeks at most, if you're going to go hit five hours on feet just to feel it, 
But I don't know if I'd go much longer than that at one crack. Would you? I'd rather do three by two hours, you know, or three by 90 minutes in one day rather than go out and spend six hours on feet because your risk reward is really high at that point. But the risk actually is higher than the reward. It, it, you're, you're doing mental training at that point. You're telling yourself you're capable of doing it. And that only has to be done once in a training block. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I find on the Sunday run after, like, let's say you tempo hard on Saturday and then follow that up with a recovery effort Saturday afternoon and then go run Sunday. You kind of should have that feeling like those first, that first mile or two, like, oh, this is going to be a long day. You know, when you start your recovery running, you're like, dang, I'm sticky. Like, this sucks. Mm-hmm. And then you have to sit in that the whole three hours, which is, yes, miserable, but it's also like simulating how you feel the back half of an ultra. So that's why I like that quality snuck in on the Saturday before. There's another thing you can do is you can use non-impact to fatigue yourself and then go do compromised strength. I mean, compromised intensity. I used to love riding around Lake Geneva on my bike. It was 21 miles. It was very hilly. Get done with that and go right into a tempo. It's almost like a brick workout. But Ironmen have some of the most phenomenal compromised running ability I've ever seen. And I think there's power to brick workouts. And if you need the confidence to go that long on feet, just say, hey, I know that I've worked for eight hours straight. That's a perfect way to do it. Two hours on the bike, three hours run, two hours back on the bike. Long day, yes. But if that's important for your confidence and fueling and figuring everything out, that's a safe way to do it. It is. And day two can always be done uphill or dragging a tire. You know, you, you take away the injury risk, but you make sure that on race day, when I am tired, I can power up these hills all day long. And yep. keep in mind that the people who are winning ultras or going top five are closing. Rarely, I mean, sometimes they're stumbling to the finish, but it's the people that are able to bomb descents and, and empty the tank on the last climb that are the, the ones climbing their way to the top. So you still need that nasty intensity in your in your mind and in your body. Absolutely. Um, he has one more question. Says, sorry, one more. With the importance of 80-20 for longevity and performance, how can I apply that principle to my kids now? Or should they just go all in as much as they want? Is there an age when starting 80-20 starts to matter more? 80-20 is physiological. I do not believe it's age-related. I do believe that there are as many examples of people burning out as there are people being successful their entire lives. So I wouldn't get too hung up in it, but you can always err on the side of lower volume. I think that that kids who run lower volume in middle school and high school have room to grow in college. You're not guaranteed to burn out if you do high mileage early, but you're suddenly in the the high risk category. So mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with being successful later in life. Kids seem to respond to anything as you're developing, right? Yeah. So for one, like I think your kids are going to get better no matter what, if they are put under some sort of training program. Um, in hindsight, I don't know if I would have said this in my younger years, but I think erring on the side of caution, the lower volume is probably more beneficial for long-term success for anybody. And so I think there's a place for easy runs. I think I think kids knowing their effort is really tough. I think just limit the amount of sessions because kids typically just go ham, what I, what I find. So just maybe less frequent sessions. I don't think you should be pounding the 80-20 principle on a kid because I think it's going to be extremely hard to follow. Yeah. I've thought a lot about this because there's that deep down part of me that wants to be that dad that puts his kids into a Olympic caliber training program from day mm. one and see what they can become. I'm not going to do it until mm. they ask for it. If they ask for it, I'll provide anything they want. But what I would do is I would make pretty much the majority of the aerobic development as a child, non-impact. I would have them roller skating. 
like blading, blading with, with cross country poles. I would have them biking, mountain biking like crazy. And I would have them working on speed development would be my goal of their running where they'd be training like a 100, 200, 400 meter runner when they're young with the huge aerobic development coming from swimming, biking, Nordic style skating. That's what I would do. Family bike rides, family skiing in the winter, things like that, and then go hit some short, spicy stuff. I think that'd be ideal if you could swing it. I, w- I, I think that in the long-term development, if you could have a big engine built before they go through puberty and introduced volume impact run-based once their body has changed and grown, that's the way I would do it for long-term development. Yeah, yeah. No need for strength when they're real young. That's actually can potentially be done detrimental. So keep keep any heavy load out of it until they're actually hitting or through puberty. Um, heavy, I said. You can throw light weights in there. Oh, yeah. Don't get me wrong. Gymnastics through puberty, five by five afterwards. Five by five after. Good work on those inner thighs, folks. Um, don't know who asked this because I had a notification pop up on my phone in the very moment I screenshot. So the name has a Strava notification over it. So sorry Probably about Lisa. that. Whoever asked this, no, it's Ryan Bottrell gave me kudos on run number two is what uh, what it says. Um, If you live in a place where the roads and trails are for the most part icy and slick all winter long, is it unwise to do speed work in those conditions? Even with tracks, it never feels totally safe. That's one of those things I can't give advice on. I can say what I would do, which is I put on my spiked shoes and I find the best terrain I can find. And oftentimes for me, that means deeper snow. We've talked about this. Mm -hmm. If it is too icy and I don't trust it, which sometimes happens, but I've done speed work on that. I get to a point where you can't fall. And if you do, you don't get hurt because you're in shin or ankle deep snow. And I pound my speed there. If you can't get on a treadmill. We'll have to call it quality versus speed once you're trudging through the snow. But you can always find at least 50 meters dry somewhere. And then you do more threshold work and then you just do 30 meter hard accelerations and that's your speed work for the winter. If I have any questions about it, uh, I'm going to snow. I'm going, I'm actually seeking out the trails with fluff on it. Um, But we all know, and we've said this a couple of times, but we all know like a bike path that's well taken care of or the bike lane next to a major road, pick the same damn city block. If you know it's somewhat safe and just go nuts on it. Heck, get up in the morning and go pour your salt down like somebody's city block and go hit it in the afternoon. You probably... Probably be good to go by then. I'm in, I'm assuming this person is rural, that they're living out in the country somewhere and everything ice is over and they can't keep it. But then, yeah, just, I guess, move into the field. Or mm-hmm. if, I mean, I love to tell people you can get away without investing money into things. And you can, you absolutely can. But if this is a big time passion of yours, invest in a treadmill, mm-hmm. which that's a cop-out answer, but that's what it is. The treadmill, we, we bag on it, but it, it has its place. Um, Kevin Gregory, fat loss coach. That's his Instagram name. Bubbles the Clown. This is Bubbles the Clown. If you've ever seen Bubbles the Clown run around at uh, races, he's become kind of a Spartan icon, right? He absolutely has. I roomed Mr. with him in Killington one year. I don't know him personally, but he seems like a nice guy. He is. Mr. Bubbles. Outside of his creepy name, Bubbles the Clown, and his creepy clown mask. If, if I knew nothing about him but that, I would despise him. But since I got to know him outside of it, he's a pretty awesome guy. Kevin, I'd like to know the origin of Mr. Bubbles the Clown, how that came to be. You should tell us. Um, He says, Bubbles says, with so many great races and race series to choose from, how do you go about picking? Especially if you're like Bracken and you're good at all the distance, but not the master of any. (laughs) I laughed out loud when I first read this. Oh, I don't know if that's a compliment (laughs) or an insult. Do you go back back to hating Bubbles now? 
No, I'm taking everything as an insult. I'm in chip on my shoulder season. It's, it's that last sentence. If you're like Bracken and you're good at all the distance, but not a master of any. As you were saying, good at all distance, I was going to say, oh, come on. He's wrong. And then he said, but not master of any. I thought, oh, come on. Stadium champ, how many years in a row? Oh, I lost track, Kirk. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> what, do you, what do you have to say to Bubbles? It depends what motivates you. Do series motivate you or does passion motivate you? I'm a big time in favor of pursuing the things that excite you and that you're passionate about. And you can hodgepodge your season together if you don't get caught up in series. If you care about a series placement, then that drives your year. I think if you're lucky, what you love the most is also what you're the best at. Yeah. And then it's an easy decision. I love the mountains and I'm the good at them. I'll pick the mountain series. But I think it becomes a, a struggle between the head and the heart, right? Like that's really what it comes down to. My, my heart wants the U.S. National Series. My mm -hmm. head knows that elevation and mountains, although been getting better, aren't the best. I would love a Flatlander Series. I would be the one who shows up knowing that we don't have to go race at altitude in the flats. But I choose the U.S. National Series because my heart is in it even though my head tells me that's not going to give me the best placing. So I think it's a head versus the heart thing, man. You just got to balance out what's more important. That's how I, I say it. Yeah. I think that's simple enough, huh? Yeah. Look at the race. What excites you? Go do it. Dez says, why do I get a headache after I run? Am I overexerting myself or breathing in incorrectly? If so, how do you breathe? Is there a pattern you follow? Thanks. Smiley face with the tongue sticking out. Now we're both lucky because we don't have to think about our breathing when we run. However, at two points in my life, I was holding a ton of attention and not breathing during high intensity work. And I was getting massive debilitating headaches. You were. Right where I thought I had a tumor or something terribly wrong. The back of your head or front of your head? Uh, like top side. Like if you divide mm. my head into thirds, right at the top third of it, it was just above mm. my temple, a couple inches above it, just debilitating at the end of races or workouts, high school and in college. And both times it turned out it was a breathing thing. Like what would, what do you mean hold? How does one hold their breath when they're working hard? I don't know, it's, it's nonsensical, but I, I had two or three races in a row where I got done and then within five seconds, my head just was like a cannon had erupted inside of it. And I mm. told my dad about it. And this was probably my sophomore, junior year of high school. It wasn't during cold winter training? No, no, this was just normal track. And the next race, he positioned himself on the home stretch. And he said, as I came off the last turn, I went from like to just like clenched mm -hmm. up face tight and pumping to the finish. And he said he didn't think that I breathed from like 80 meters into the finish. That would be impressive. And I, I don't even know if I could physically do that if I tried. So I started focusing on that and he immediately went away. And then in college, my junior year, I think same thing. I started at the end of interval workouts, getting this crazy headache. And then I just started focusing on breathing. And I don't know if it was a breathing thing, but it coincided with the day I started focusing on it. I stopped getting headaches. Hmm. So twice in my life, I've had to focus on it, but I didn't focus on pattern. I just focused on exhaling because instantly you inhale as soon as you exhale. Yeah. Part of me thinks like if you're thinking about your breathing, you're doing it wrong already, right? Yeah. It should be innate, right? Um, babies are all born, belly breathing, not thinking about it. And as we grow older and develop habits and life stress and tension, we our patterns change. We breathe high in our chest instead of low. We don't fully exchange oxygen in our lower like bronchioles and alveoli. Um, my suggestion to you, Des, would be um, one: just make sure you're breathing. I think Brad made a good point. Like staying relaxed in the shoulders and things like that when you start working hard can make a big difference. But also like making sure you get that full breath out 
and then fully exchanging breaths in and refilling the lungs as well. Maybe every, if you're working hard every 30 seconds or so, like forcing air out further on the exhale and then forcing air in and getting a full exchange. I think that carbon dioxide filled uh, air might be sitting in your lungs and you're sitting in a low grade oxygen deprivation state, which would cause a headache in anybody. That's why people go to altitude or elevation and their blood O2 drops and they get a headache just from low grade oxygen deprivation. My guess is you're not fully exchanging oxygen, which could be from holding your breath or just not simply exhaling everything fully, letting some of that old air sit in, let's say the bottom of your lungs, which isn't exactly what happens, but I'll simplify it and getting rid of it and fully exchanging it. That'd be my first advice yeah. without knowing more. And there are breathing coaches out there and I've always scoffed at it. Like you're, you're just trying to get people to focus on something that they don't have an issue on in the first place. However, there are people that actually do have struggles with breathing cadence while running. And then that's a, it's a simple Google search, yep. optimal breathe patterns while, while running. And, and that's your, that's your jumping off point. But yeah, but start by focusing on exhaling. Jeremy Whitley loved this weekend week's time trial episode. Been a while since we've done that, hasn't it? <laughs> Sorry, Jeremy. <laughs> yeah. uh, two quick questions for the next QA. What are your thoughts on HRV as a tool to measure recovery and justify increased volume beyond 80 20 parameters at heart rates zone four and five? So basically, HRV is a tool to measure your recovery, mm-hmm. heart rate variability, heart rate ver- and justifying increasing volume based on that. The logic behind that, the thought process is that you have your base metrics of what your heart rate is throughout a day. And when it is different from that, when it's variable from that, that your body's in a state of crisis and needs extra recovery because it's going through something. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty sound premise, but there's always extenuating circumstances. And I don't put my entire trust in it, use it as a tool. In terms of exceeding 80-20, 80-20 is not a limit because what we've talked about, there have been Olympians on 90-10, 91-9, and there have been, I, I talk about the Ingerbertsons all the time, and they're more like, I don't know, 85-25 or 70-30, like they're above it. 85-25 is 110. Kirk, you stay out of this. 25-75 uh, <laughs> or 70-30, 25-35 or 70-30. So they're, they're doing more threshold work throughout their training than most people do. They do double threshold days at least twice a week. They they spend a lot of time doing it, but they've built up to it. So anyways, 80-20 is not a hard and fast limit. It's a guide. So I'm okay with extending past that in the first place. But second of all, using heart rate variability to do it, yeah, I would I would use that as probably that combined with your overall feeling of fatigue and the overall progression that you're going through. If you're progressing and you're not overly fatigued, then you're doing something right. And if you're just feeling like crap and your heart rate's showing you that, then you're doing something wrong. And if you're progressing and you feel super refreshed every day and you have some heart rate variability going on, then it's time to look at what some of the underlying issues might be. Yeah. And we're also, the one thing we're missing with Jeremy is like, we we assume that he is completely healthy and increased volume doesn't mean risk of adverse, like potential for injury or exacerbating things, which I think should lead that increased volume train every time. Mm-hmm. Like, am I making myself vulnerable or susceptible to an injury that I'm predisposed to or potentially something that's nagging? Then the answer is no, no matter what your HRV is doing. Um, but granted all of those things are okay. Um, I would start with adding easy volume. And yeah. seeing if it's, you know, extending your recovery run a little bit if you feel the need, I guess, uh, and seeing if you still perform on your quality days and your HRV doesn't change. I, I don't know. 
Well, I think that more people injure themselves, not I think, I know more people injure themselves through bigger volume than get into overtraining syndrome. Overtraining syndrome is common, but not nearly as common as stress fractures or or hip flexor inflammation or SI problems or anything like that. Like you're going to physically injure yourself before you overtrain yourself nine times out of 10. Mm -hmm. That first happened. Yeah, the injury happens before the overtraining. It's like the universe's way of slowing you down, right? Yeah. Most people that can get into overtraining are super resilient physically because yep. they, they don't injure first. They're in the minority. Yeah. Yeah, to be able to even get to that state. Uh, his follow-up question I like more than his initial question. Uh, what are your thoughts on increased volume beyond 80-20 parameters? So maybe going 70-30 or 60-40. At heart rate zone four, using the assault bike or something else low impact. So breaching out of the 80-20 and using non-impact modality. instead. Of, so basically, yeah, instead of running, doing uh, something like the assault bike, rower, etc. Said this was glossed over on the episode with Jess O'Connell. Um, was his side comment. What do you think about that? Breaching those parameters and non-impact volume. I actually don't do that. I include it all in my volume, my intensity because intensity is not just impact. It's also the physiological effect on you at a cellular level, uh, a systemic stress. And so a salt bike can lead you into overtraining just as well as running can. And so just because you're not taking an impact to me doesn't mean that I discount it from my formula. Okay. That's, that's my base level take. I have a stipulation with this. I think if you actually are running and you are adding volume and cross training matters and you're doing a run program with quality work and you have purposeful training there, any non-impact should be in the 80% added in there just for increased like aerobic capacity, if that's how you want to look at it. However, I will say when you're injured, at least this is my, my belief that if I'm doing no impact work, I'm not running at all. I'm only doing cross training. I think it's okay to go even up to like 60, 40, if I'm being oh, early, sure. pretty honest, but if running is in the mix, nope, stay at 80, 20, do not, do not change that. And, and you're, you're spot on there. It's the function of impact and cellular stress, systemic stress. And as impact stops being there, it's not part of the equation anymore. And so that that systemic stress can can rise a bit. I, I would say I'm probably around 60-40 if I'm not running in terms of my my assault bike or my spin bike and rowing, swimming, whatever it is, because you can you can absorb more of that. Yeah. So I think that stipulation or asterisks had to, has to be put by that. The question, the context is important. Um, Jabari House, that's a badass name, Jabari House. Uh, it says, I want to ask you a question about high intensity boot camps and how effective they can be to train for OCR races. Oh, we're opening up a can of worms here, Kirk. I'll answer it. I'm going to start by making waves. Ooh, I like it. I think that high intensity boot camps are the IPAs of the fitness world. <laughs> I think they're overly celebrated when they shouldn't be, and they are used to cover up deficiencies. IPAs just have a high, a, a lot, a lot, a lot of hops thrown in, which is what brewers do when they are trying to cover up skunky beer. It doesn't mean that all IPAs are skunk beer that's been covered up, but that's the technique that brewers use to cover up beer that's been in the vat too long. You just throw a bunch of hops at it, and now you get this big hoppy taste, and you can you can get rid of it. I think a lot of fitness professionals, and I say professionals in air quotes, use boot camp style to tire people out. And if I can get them tired and exhausted, I can cover up my lack of know-how to actually get results. And people confuse fatigue or soreness with progression and fitness gain. 
IPAs can be great. Boot camps can be great, but it doesn't mean that they naturally are. I like I like your uh, your stance on that one. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but I am a fitness professional. Yes, who you are. Does run, let's say, small groups. I don't remember. Um, first of all, the word boot camp is so vague that it just doesn't give us enough information. Mm-hmm. You know, you have yeah you have high intensity boot camps, which mean it's like cardio hit circuits, and some boot camps like my small groups, I put some damn weight in those people's hands, and we are doing some real real work, and maybe finishing the workout with some more hit stuff to make them feel good and tire them out before they leave, for example. So I, I think there's some progression within the workouts that I run. Um, here's the deal, Jabari. Like if your ass doesn't get to the gym, unless you have something there to hold you accountable or you dread or don't know, have the know-how, I think it is significantly better than nothing. I think it can be great cross-training conditioning. If you're injured or you're not putting in a lot of run volume, I think it can all pay off. Um, I think it can be good for transitional work going from one thing into the next and at least just doing multidimensional and functional movements. Um, I think you're not going to reach your peak potential on the strength realm or the performance realm by just exclusively using boot camps for your fitness and strength performance. I think you're going to, you might reach 60, 70%, honestly, at best. Uh, Something is better than nothing though. And if that's what you got, like I commend you for going, but if you're training like an athlete, then it would need more purpose than a random boot camp. Yeah. And there'd be a progression to it. If you took an Olympic trials runner and brought them to OCR and they did, I don't know, 240 burpees in their first race, kept their training exactly as is and sent them to the boot camp twice per week, they'd probably cut their burpees in half. Hmm. But eventually they get to the point where they would have maxed out their ability to increase based off someone else's randomized boot camp programming. Or even if it's not randomized, it's not based around them. It's based around meeting a varied clientele. And that's the beauty of boot camp. You can have 50 people there on 50 different ages, you know, multiple genders, multiple weight range and, and skill sets. And you can all get a good workout in because you just work hard, regardless of the exercise is beneficial to you as an athlete or now. But you get to the point where that you tap that out and then you have to take the concepts of that and program it down into specific workouts that will target your weaknesses and your needs in a race. So yes, it's beneficial, but it's not a cure-all. It gets you to your base level of performance. And then like anything else in life, you have to decide, do I choose the happiness of doing this or does my happiness come from really diving into the process and specializing it for me? Mm-hmm. Something I did experience, um, Mike Ferguson, buddy of ours used to live in Minneapolis and his wife Ooh, taught a boot camp. I forgot about this. I'm glad his wife his, his wife taught a boot camp on Saturday mornings at like 6 a.m. And I went. It was like two bucks a class. It's like for the greater good sort of thing. And Mike and I would go and run the boot camp uh, as I was a client, not the teacher, which is a new role for me. And it was 90 minutes long. And then we go right there, change our shoes and go run the trails. And I must say that in hindsight, and then I had my first breakout season right after that. I was doing low volume because I was dealing with plantar fasciitis, yada, yada. Um, I feel there was some damn benefit to that. We were hitting our run in a very compromised state. Rather, if it was a hodgepodge workout or not, it didn't matter. And then we go out and put 60, 90, 120 minutes on feet, like pretty dang tired because there'd be a lot of legwork. And I just feel like that did something. I don't know what it would be, but it did something. And I think one of the keys there was I was working with Mike at this time. And he, that's the best, most fit he's ever he's been. a monster, but he did a lot of it at like 70 to 80% effort throughout those 90 minutes. He stayed yeah. sub-maximal and just got time on feet moving and fatiguing and then went out and hit his pointed work. Yep. I think there was some some benefit to that. There was. I, I'll have to, the, the research is probably not out there yet. But. No. 
Um, Jeremy Whitley, once again, says, I'm so sorry. I know. I'm annoying. <laughs> Q&A question. If you're cross-training on an assault bike and you're looking to maintain a particular pace, what would be an acceptable RPM range, wattage range, or speed range that would be considered consistent for the purposes of a workout? That's There's no answer for that one. No, but this is the one where you... I love using the 30-30 workout for pace setting. I use it for running. If someone has no clue what kind of fitness they're in and they don't want to do a time trial, I just put them on 30-30, see how many rounds you can get until your pace breaks. And then we use that to, to predict things. Same thing on there. Do 30-30 and look at your RPMs and your average, your, your watts per hour or cals per hour, whichever your bike can show and get a sense for what does hard feel like. And then you start taking percentages of that for different workouts, whether you're doing one minute intervals or 10 minute intervals. I'm 100% heart rate based on that thing, knowing what, what I'm actually getting out you of are. that workout. Yeah. So I, I'm actually bad to ask about that. That's how I determine everything. In fact, a lot of times I have a phone covering my screen with something playing where I can't even see what I'm doing. I'll, I can see the time and that's it. And I just go off of my heart rate. So um, this is something we haven't talked about and I wouldn't say we're going to disagree, but we might, but I am not, and we, we have talked about that we're not a, a, a fan of going by heart rate on quality sessions Correct. generally, but there are people who swear by it. One of my rationales for not swearing by it is that if you only go off your heart rate, if it's hotter or if you're at higher elevation or if you got a bad night of sleep or if you're starting to get sick, it's a rev limiter and you're always matching the right effort to your body's right state. But what mm -hmm. happens on race day? If I was exercising, heart rate makes so much sense. But if I was training for competition on race day, if you got bad night of sleep, which you're going to, if you're at a different mm -hmm. elevation or a different humidity level or whatever it is about to get sick, coming off getting sick and your heart rate's off, you don't get to say, all right, everybody, let's back down one notch as we approach this hill. Like it's not a spin class where everyone can, can do that together. You're going to have to match your effort to the requirements of your competition. And so I do like on hard days to have to over rev some days in order to get the intended result because you know you're taking it easy and going heart rate based on your easy days. Well, on a, on a run and quality days, unless I'm doing a very calculated threshold run, I'm not looking at it. So I agree with you 100% yeah. on that. I think in cross training, people's heart rates don't get as high as they believe they do. And so for me, I can be working hard and my arms and legs can be tiring out on the assault bike. And I'm like, shit, I'm only at 160. Like I need, I want to be at 170. And so it's just a way to keep me actually getting high enough. It's not a way to stop me from going high. It's a way to get me high enough. So it depends how you look at it, but I do agree with you 100% actually. I have been in a, in a, in a six mile race before where I looked down at my heart rate and backed off a little bit because it was a number that I hadn't proven to myself in training. Whereas if there was someone next to me who did not have access to a watch, they would have just raced off racing. Mm. And the competition is not to see what zone you can stay in. It's to see how fast you can get to the end. And sometimes we overthink that. I agree with that. I would never look at it in a race. I would never look at it at intervals. I would never even consider it because it could only, I feel like, play one direction for you. And that would be probably poor. The longer the race, the more I'd be tempted to look at it. I don't think I would ever look at it under 90 minutes. I would say two hours. I don't think I'd touch it. Yeah. yeah. Um, Jabari uh, added one in. I missed. He just wants to know, I'm actually very curious what you think about this. Can y'all speak, must be from the self. Can y'all speak on the Peloton craze in regards to if it's even functional for what we do? You know, I love it. I don't know if it's functional to what we do, meaning you and I trying to compete at the highest level of a runner is possible, but I love it. Anytime a fitness craze sweeps our nation, even if it has some minor casualties on the side, 
it's a net improvement to our nation's and our world's fitness and health. So I am mm-hmm. all about it. And Peloton probably does the best job I've seen out of any fitness product out there in terms of targeted at the masses of having scaled classes with intentional durations and intensities for each day where you're not showing up, finding out I'm going 90 minutes ball to the wall or it's 10 minutes hill sprints. Like you get to know what you're about to do before you do it. And I, so I like that. Mm-hmm. I have a number of clients who won't work out outside of our sessions together if it wasn't for their Peloton. It's accountability uh, built in. And so for that very reason that you mentioned, I really enjoy it. Um, I don't know where I would place it into a purposeful training program if you were able to run as much as you'd like, because these Peloton classes are typically high intensity, which is great for the gen pop, but um, you should be recovering probably on those non-impact days. So if you're injured, might might make sense to throw a few in there. If you're healthy, I don't really see a place for it because it would probably cause you to work too hard on a day you shouldn't be. I used it. I used it with Ross, or Ross and I used it together in his training program to sub out quality run days for intentional days to deload pounding, or days yep. where he was feeling beat up, but we wanted intensity. So Wednesday, many Wednesdays, we did our speed session on a Peloton if he wasn't ready. Mm-hmm. So I agree with that. Great 100%. tool for an athlete. Great product in general for our country. And before we move on, yeah, you know what's going to happen in our in our society, people are going to come out with a cheaper and more accessible version. That's always what happens. Someone comes out with an iPod and then they come out with their like SanDisk $30 version or, you know, whatever it's going to be, a Zune. And so the same thing is going to happen with this. It's going to up the non-impact cardio capabilities of all the other companies. It forces them to react. So I think it's a net gain. Yeah. Yeah. And the Peloton does have the treadmill function as well, which I don't think we'll dive into, but it's actually a pretty good ding product too. It's an awesome product and awesomely overpriced. Yeah, sure. His people are paying for it though. Um, question. What should I make of the ground contact differential? What causes it? How do you recommend going about correcting that? So basically run contact differential between your feet, making contact with the ground, spending more time on one foot than the other. Yeah. Yada, yada. Is it anything you're concerned about? In a way? Yes. Yeah, I believe that our sport's about staying power. And any imbalance we have is what leads to a loss of staying power, whether that's fitness or whether that's structural or physical. And so ground contact differences stem from imbalances, whether it's actual balance and stability or strength or lack of mobility on a side. And so anything that can highlight those areas and give us something to work on in training, I like it. Was the guy running on a treadmill or was he running on the side of the road with a slope? Was uh, the terrain he used, you know, switchbacking up one mountain in a certain way or not? Um, are we splitting hairs here or is this something of concern? You know, like, I think we all have some sort of imbalance. I, like, if anybody gets done with a run and their ground contact differential is exactly like the same on both legs, I don't, I'd be shocked. Um, so I would say if you're healthy and you feel efficient, don't look into it. Um, and I wouldn't even know how to go about correcting it unless I knew the underlying cause of it. So um, that's where I that's where I would say that makes sense. Mike, my, my my reason for using it is that you look at people and we fall into one of three camps. On the far end of the spectrum, we have the Bernard Lagats, the Eliud Kipchogis, the Hobie Calls, the um, VJ Jones, the people who you can look at them and know 
they are hitting the ground and they're off the ground and they are light on their feet and they're efficient and their stride does not change as they fatigue. Mm -hmm. And then the second column would be like you and Ryan Atkins and Robert Killian and people who are, their stride does change throughout a race, but Mm -hmm. they're successful at it. Those would be Mm -hmm. the people that maybe you want to optimize. Maybe you want to not mess with it. Like Robert Killian's stride changes as he runs. His uphill stride is a little funky. His downhill stride flails a little. His flat ground, his lower body is beautiful and his upper body is really churning all over the place. He's a world champion and he gets success out of it. And even when his stride changes, it doesn't erode. Ryan Atkins is the same way. His stride looks different throughout different points of races, but he's closing hard. And so you could argue, maybe we should optimize that and maybe we should not touch it because he's so successful at it. And then there are the people like me who, as we fatigue, our stride loses its ability to drive power. And when I'm broken, I appear broken. And when I'm Mm -hmm. charging, I appear to be charging. And the people like me, a lot of, and I think a lot of us fall into that where our stride deteriorates with our, with our endurance. And those Mm -hmm. are the people that really clearly have imbalances and need to work on it. But what do you do? How do you even determine where your imbalance stems from? You know, it's a whole can of worms if we talk about like why. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a chicken egg thing where I don't need my data to tell me that my right hamstring insertion point is barking at the end of speed work or threshold runs or long runs. And that mm-hmm. my left foot is getting off the ground way quicker than my right. I don't need that. But if somehow you were disconnected from your biofeedback, it would be a nice alert to be like, well, I'm really imbalanced on this leg. I need to run a systems check the next time I do a workout and see what's really going on. And then maybe I get in the weight room and I test out single leg curl on each side and single leg extension and calf raise and all those type of things and see where are my big weaknesses and then I can address that. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. We move to the next. Yeah. Colin Lee says something I'd like. Uh, to hear you discuss is advice for people who came into fitness and running late. For example, I'm 37 and started exercising consistently in 2017. I only started taking running seriously this year. So in 2020, at the start of the year, I could scrape a 5k without stopping. So 5k would be a good run for him without stopping. Happy to give you more info if you want. I said, we don't need any more. (laughs) So, so advice for people who came into running late. The later you start, the more the the small building blocks matter, in my opinion. The plyometric drills, the form drills, the warm-up, cool-down, all the little things that cement your mechanics in stone because you don't have that, that pathway set in your body yet. And so even if you're functionally able to handle training, you might develop bad habits early, whereas a lot of people work through them or they've already set their bad habits in stone. You can you can start from the beginning. So these are the type of people that I would be having doing form drills, jump roping, plyo, things like that every single day earlier in their career. And just knowing that I'm going to be slower than people at first, but I'm going to improve later into life than everyone else. And so you, you treat it the same way. I'm going to progress through my training. I'm not going to try to make up 20 years in one year. Mm -hmm. Two things come to mind for me. One, the phrase stay in your own lane, Mm -hmm. meaning don't compare yourself to others. Don't look at what others are doing, especially the people you might look up to in sport and try to mimic them. I think that's a huge mistake, especially on the volume front. You're just not ready for that. And it's only going to be an ego blow to know you're not where everybody else is at as well. So I only see negative consequences to that. So stay in your own lane, stay focused and focus on the small little victories along the way that are personal to you. I think people can get defeated 
when they're new to all this and comparing comparing is the root of all evil and that's inevitable but like minimize it so stay in your own lane and then two, uh be a sponge for knowledge you should be the person yeah you're late but who cares buy books listen to podcasts read articles and start like just educating yourself on this so you can approach things uh as smart so those would be the two like first things that come to mind and slow and steady progression is better than fast and injured so um slow it down slow it down slow it down slow it down um that's where i would start yeah and everyone's going to improve off of anything when you're new to it so stick to the basics like you said don't don't shortchange the process just stick to the basics you're going to improve right away off anything yep do it right i agree I'm going to leave it there because there's a lot we could go into yeah. with that, but I think that's enough. Uh, ben Bollinger says, since you both are coming off injuries, what did you do mentally to keep from going crazy when you could not do what you love? Running. I'm dealing with a foot issue, so I've taken off the past couple of weeks and started biking, rowing, and doing more strength training and watching you know, apps showing I'm burning calories and staying fit. However, I can tell I'm not as fit as when I'm running. I'm going crazy and constantly feel guilty for not running. It's easy to say, just don't worry, but the mind games you play with yourself and then you gain two, three pounds is just agonizing. So I guess the subject I'd like to hear more about is how to deal mentally with not running when running is not an option. I mean, that... I feel for you, brother. Feel for you, brother. That sums it all up. That That's that's the experience right there of the injured athlete. Everything. That's the whole gamut there. It's the from physical distress to mental agony to guilt, weight gain. I mean, that's the whole experience right there. I'm up 10 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. From my race weight of 170, I got up to high rocks 181, had surgery at 173, had second surgery at 181. Oh I got right back up there without training for high rocks. That wasn't lifting weight. Like, well, this is what everyone goes through when you're injured. And the thing that sustained me was finally realizing that I'm feeling all this anguish over not being able to run. And if I shortcut the process, I guarantee that I get to feel this again in the future. Like this mm-hmm. guarantees my return to this spot mentally. And so I have to embrace this suck now to never come back to here again. That's the only thing that got me through is realizing the longer I spend doing it right now, the less I have to ever return here. No, it's harder than anything. Is that first week, two weeks, three weeks when you realize that you can't do it and you've been in the habit of running. Once you get to month one, two, three, four, five, like I did, seven, like you did, you kind of settle in and accept it. I still think you're in the stage of grief, Corey, where you're like not believing this is accurate and you know the denial phase. And that's the hardest phase when you really first realize like, hey, I can't run anymore. So one, I do think you need to get over the hump of that beginning. He said he was, I think what I say, two, three weeks in or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you just got to trust that it gets better and suddenly you accept you're not to the acceptance phase yet. But once you are, life gets a lot better. And then two, you just have to know that you will come out of it and you won't lose as much as you think. You always feel less fit than you are. And if you stay on your cross training, it will come back much, much quicker than if you just give up altogether. And just holding that carrot in front of you is gold when it comes to this. So move from the denial to the acceptance phase. Be okay with it. Settle into your new role as a cross-training athlete for the moment, and you will be happy you did once you return to running. Absolutely. Yeah. Corey Edwards says, I've been running the Savage Race. Uh, I always race in VJs, but I 99% of the time train in Evo Speed Goats. How often do you think you should do a run in your race shoes, or do you think you even need to? Currently, maybe once a month, I will do a short run in the max or extreme, but not very often. 
We'd love to hear both your opinions. Thanks. Well, Kirk and I come from track backgrounds. And so it's very ingrained into us that we do our recovery and long work in our cushioned neutral shoes. And we Mm -hmm. do our threshold work and uh, lightweight trainers, so to speak, and our speed work in our race shoes. So that's the way we approach it. And it's worked relatively well for us since. That's about right. Recovery is about recovery. So whatever shoe helps you recover the most. Some people I think are just trying to save their shoes. You know, they're expensive. BJs aren't cheap. They're worth the money, but they're not cheap. So do you want to wear them out? Do you want to, you know, I save them for the days where I need a big performance, whether it's, it's my hard interval fast stuff or my races. And then exactly lightweight trainer for threshold work and cushy for recovery. Yeah. What you can do if you don't want to blow out your race shoes is you just get a regular shoe that mimics it. Similar drop, similar weight, similar flexibility. And so, you know, for the maxes, a similar shoe is the razor. It's not the identical shoe, but they're both about the same weight. They have about the same drop. And so I know that my soleus, calf, uh, Achilles, they're getting the same angle of impact when I wear those two shoes. My IROCs, they're about the same as my racing flats. They have the same drop. They weigh about the same. They have about the same level of cushion. So even if I'm doing track work or trail work or whatever, my feet and calves and soleus and Achilles are at least used to the same type of stress. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I also like to take like, okay, I'm going to race in these shoes this year. It takes a year cycle to get through this, but then you're, you reward yourself with a new set of race shoes and you use the old ones for like a few workouts here and there, which I do from time to time. I kind of cycle through that. It's also a good approach. Next question, Mr. Brian Gawiski. Oh, Brian. Hello, Brian. I asked Brian yesterday. First of all, I, I texted him to give him some flack because he's a Jets fan and they lost like 40 to 3. Mm-hmm. And he just responded with, we're tanking for Trevor Lawrence. So we're fine. <laughs> but I said, when are you going to have a weekday off of work so we can record? He said, uh, never. He said, I think oh, uh, Christmas Eve morning is my first off day. I'd like to chat with him. I would too. All right. So I need answers now, he says in all capital letters. Very demanding, Brian. What does it mean when the effort feels easy, but the heart rate says otherwise? Like if I feel I'm running at aerobic effort, but my heart rate is at threshold effort, does it just mean I'm out of shape? Where's the breathing? He said, he said, I said, it totally just means you're out of shape. You might as well give up. That was my typed response yeah take that brian (laughs) then we chat uh he follows it up with i should also add that running pace was slower based off heart rate it was on a crushed gravel trail for example 150 bpm would put me somewhere around 630 pace but today at 150 i was around 730 ish but he was on crushed crushed gravel so whatever that's what i'm inherently distrustful of things and so if my heart rate's telling me that but i'm not feeling it i'll just say well my my heart rate data is off today and i don't trust my device but then you run the backup systems check, which is breathing. And if your breathing's off the chart, then you know I'm either out of shape or I'm getting sick or something weird is going on today. But if your breathing's fine and your heart rate's all skewed, you either have a major medical issue about to happen or it's just an anomaly. I think Brian's doing okay medically, I believe. Yeah. So in that case, I would say check your breathing and then rip it up. You know, I would say though, like if you ever look at heart rate data, let's say you have one of those rare like lightning strike days where you're out there and you're just floating. You're working hard, but it feels effortless. Mm-hmm. Then you go back and look at your heart rate data and your heart rate data would tell you that was not effortless. In fact, you were really working hard. I'd never had that. Of course you have. Never. I've never had a day where I felt easy and my heart was jacked. Like I know when my heart rate's up. I've never, ever had that day. Like let's say you're out doing a tempo run or a 5K time trial or you hit that groove in a race where you're like, wow, I'm floating. 
but your heart rate's still at 175. You've never hit that. I can't say I have. I think you're the exception, not the rule. But point I'm making is like, sometimes on those good days, like perceived exertion does not always line up with heart rate. It just, for me, it hasn't. Like on my really good days where I think it's easy and then I see my data, uh, like, wow, that those quarter mile repeats just felt like butter today. Like it just, I could have worked harder. And then I look and I'm like, well, I worked pretty dang hard. So at the data. So I don't know. I think there's some of that too. Maybe I'm almost always, always the opposite where my heart rate is way higher or my way lower than I would appreciate it to be. I'm like, man, I'm mm. working hard. This is rough. I look down and it's like six to eight beats lower than I want it to be. And I think, man, I have to work even harder than this. They, uh, and that means you got tired legs. What that means. Matthew Fleet, Fleetwood, I think it's cut off. Uh, I was listening to your most recent winter running training Tuesday episode, and it made me think of something I hear a lot from top athletes. They say they will take months off of running and replace it with other activities such as skiing, biking, or just strictly weightlifting. For example, John Albin in the winter with his skis, Hunter McIntyre with his weights. Uh, then they jump back into running before racing season and they're fit. For, for an athlete who wants to become a faster runner, is this a viable option or should you always keep some running in the mix? To give you context, I'm now living in Anchorage where the skiing is great in the winter months, so it has been fun switching my focus you know, to learn a new skill. It's a tough one. It is. First of all, we are blessed and cursed with a lot of freaks, outliers in our sport, people who do not fit the normal mold. And so we can't, like, we can't look to Hunter McIntyre for what we should always be doing. He knows how to program for people, but what he does for himself isn't always what we should be doing. He can take a freakishly long time away from running and come back and pick back up better than almost anyone I've ever known in my entire life. So I, I cannot base my off season around him. John Albin does so much volume and has for so many years that he gets his running back fast and he keeps his volume and intensity up when he skis. He also does a little bit of running on he a does. treadmill or on a on some flat road, just short, quick stuff to keep his running skill present over winter. And that's where I would start. I would say that your skiing can absolutely keep your engine up as high as any any event on this planet, but Winter number one, keep a run or two per week and some strides per week or short intervals. Just keep that skill present. I agree. I think Alvin runs twice a week. He might only go for three to six miles and do steady stuff. I think he's doing most of his quality work on the skis. Um, you know, if your running needs major improvement, though, like if you like know it needs help, like you're gonna want to keep you're gonna want to keep running as much as you can within reason, in my opinion. But if you feel pretty good about your engine or you want to just a break, um, sometimes going into a season refreshed and craving running is also super helpful depending on where you mentally sit with it. So, and I think that's what those guys do really well. I think Alvin comes in craving and ready and recovered. And same with Hunter, which there's some merit to that too. So, And also the more work you've done over your life of running, the quicker you return to it. And we've said that over and over, but if you're newer to running, taking two months off is really going to impact you. If you've put your 10,000 hours in, two months off is going to refresh you and you're going to come back to it quickly. Mm -hmm. But no, I do not recommend months off. I just don't. Kevin Finn. Uh, we got like, I don't know, six or eight left. We'll blow through them. Okay. Uh, do you have opinion on manual treadmills versus regular? Like the assault runner and true form. They claim to improve running form. And in my own experience, you do work harder than on a regular treadmill. Do you think they, they mimic running better than a conventional treadmill? I do not believe they improve form across the board. I think they improve in balances, but because of the way you have to run on them, it actually uses 
I, I think they're, they're two sides of the spectrum with flak around normal running in the middle, treadmill on one side, true form manual on the other side. They're both swinging you a deviation or two to the, a different side of what your normal mm -hmm. form would be. So I think they're a great tool. I think they're really good for speed work, but I think if you did all your easy running and speed work on there, you'd run into the same issues you'd run into on a regular treadmill, which is it wouldn't translate one-to-one -to, -one to the road or the trail or the track. I think they're fantastic. However, I think that all of our training is not and should not be based on uh, the treadmill. And I think it's safe to say you agree. Mm -hmm. And so when you're looking at that deviation from center, which I like how you put that, um, I don't know if they're worth the money if you're not spending a ton of time on them. And in our philosophy, when you're on the treadmill, you're either recovering, which is fine, then let the belt do a little work for you, heaven forbid. And then, uh, or you're doing incline work, um, which then I don't know how much of a difference it's going to make when the incline starts increasing. So uh, they're great. And I do feel like they're a little more natural in feel, but I don't know if the cost outweighs like the product necessarily. It, it's a great tool. And they they do two things really well. The first is they make you engage your posterior chain. You have to do that on that treadmill. And so for people like myself who are quad dominant runners, but don't use hamstring glutes so much, or at least to the same extent, they're really good for that because you have to pull back on that treadmill and that pulling back, you have to engage. So that's great. The second thing is they might be the most powerful tool for compromised running I've ever seen in my life. If you get off an exercise and go to try to run on that, you can't just click into a rhythm. You have to fight for every stride yeah, yeah. you take. And so it's such a powerful tool. But again, we're talking about a several thousand dollar tool and that's tough to justify. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't have a ton of experience with them either. I haven't run on them a ton, luckily. Um, Matt Plastina says, Solomon vests are on sale for Black Friday. Woo, we're a little behind on that. <laughs> and I just thought you should answer on this. Which would you recommend for a Spartan, Spartan Ultra or Toughest Mudder? Um, which Solomon vest would you recommend? I wouldn't go below a five set or an eight set for a true ultra race. The two set is very minimal. You can carry what you can see basically. And that's it. The mm -hmm. five set adds back storage and the eight set gives you more. Um, it's just more room. You can fit more options. You don't have to pick and choose what you do and don't take. Atkins, I believe has an eight and a five that he uses at, he used at Tahoe. He's used, mm -hmm. probably has a two as well. Cause he has all the gear. He, he mm -hmm. spends his money on gear and I appreciate that about him. But yeah, I would start, um, for the average person, I would look at the eight. And then if you're a bit more minimal, go down to a five. I have a two and then the ultra, it just wouldn't, uh, oh, world's no. toughest. It wouldn't, it wouldn't cut it. Okay. He also has a follow-up question. He says, if you and Bracken switch bodies, what is the first thing you would do as the other guy to mess with them or cause them grief? Take a bunch of nudes. You take, you take a bunch of nudes with my, with my, with, with my body. Yeah. Who, who would see them? <laughs> who would you send these to? I'd start shaving your head. You need a haircut. Ooh. You think? Yeah, I do need a haircut. I'm getting a little mullety back here. That's what you do. We switch bodies and you'd cut my hair. <laughs> I mean, if I was going to mess with you, I wouldn't want to screw up with your life, but that's something you could undo. I'd have you grow out your hair. I would be curious oh, what that, that situation looked like. I'd, I'd grow out your hair and I'd give whatever's left a perm. That's what I'd do. And then you'd wake up one day. <laughs> let's, I don't know. Let's leave that one alone. A weird um, <laughs> I kind of like it. The half Bob Ross. That would be good. Evan Wilson says, I had two questions regarding the 15 minute at 15% incline. We had a lot of people do those. 
Yeah, I love that. Uh, what is a respectable mileage achieved for the 15-15 test? I think a baseline that everyone should shoot for is to be able to get a mile. Man or woman? Man or woman, try to get up to a mile. Woman, Which is four miles an hour average on the treadmill yeah. at 15%. Yep. Yeah, uh, and a woman, I always put about 0.15 behind to 0.2. Okay. Uh, and then you start bumping up from there. I think that if you want to look at your age group podiums, you got to be one, two, five or above. And that uh, elite podium, you got to be one, five, five, I think minimum to have a, a prayer at that. And we're not talking Nordic track. Nordic track, you got to work on your calibrations. Man, I love Nordic track, but they, they make you feel like shit about yourself. So depressing. <laughs> world level, I think you got to be one eight or above to be on a podium at a world event. One seven eight to one point eight and above for men. Yeah, I guess I haven't fifteen fifteen on a regular treadmill in my Nordic track, so my my view is skewed. We did put out something about the test on our Instagram maybe last week or the week before, saying one point seven or above is like pro or elite status. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I won my my first Spartan, and I was at 1.51. I won the Chicago race weekend, and that was my test result. Um, but my climbing wasn't great then, and it was on a Nordic track, so it is hard to say. Um, I think if you're running as, an, as an, on the male side, if you're running 1.40 or above, I think you've earned yourself the right to enter an elite race. Mm -hmm. I really believe that 1.40 or above, you you can feel safe. Women, I say 1.25 or above. 1.3 for sure, 1.25, you yeah. enter the elite race for sure. Um, I think you might have a hope of winning your winning or podiuming in a small event at 1.50, women at 1.35 maybe, um, and then it goes up from there. That's how I would probably look at it. Yeah. I was at 171 when I was doing the national podium thing. and On a regular treadmill or a regular Nordic treadmill? Tre okay. And, uh, or I had the year before that, so I was probably closer to 175 at my best, and I've seen – all the best guys in the world are one eight and above. Which is incredible when you get on there and realize that pace. It is incredible. And it also shows that that one seven one, you know, nearly cost me my life that day. <laughs> and mm -hmm. and I by maybe was one seven five a year later. And that was about the zenith of my fitness. And I was point zero five behind them, which is an eternity. And it shows where what happens in the mountains. You know, I clearly was not on their level, and that's why I've never been up there. What do you think for the Nordic track and the regular treadmill users? Now you just did the treadmill test and you were disappointed. Yeah. You put it on our live IG and you were like 1.43 or something yeah. or four. I forget what it was. What do you think the difference is if you had to guess based on your experience between a Nordic track and a traditional treadmill for the 1515? A 10th? I think it's right around a 10th. That's my guess as well. I, when I, I had done that 171 and then that next year I came home from Colorado and I was really fit, the fittest I've been. And I was going to try to do 178. And I quit the test after like eight minutes because I was down to one five nine and dead. I'd started at one seven eight pace and it was so fast. And by the end I was below one six and I quit because it was foolish. That was my first time doing it on a Nordic track. So I was mm -hmm. in shape to go mid one sevens, minimum one seven one, because I'd already done that in worse shape and I couldn't hold one six pace. Wow. So it, there's a big, big discrepancy. At least point one oh five. Yes, one point one is safe. Okay. I was just curious what you thought. Um, his second part says, when he was running this test, my heart rate spiked pretty quickly. Yeah, I could have told you that was going to happen, <laughs> Evan. <laughs> uh, and I could feel the lactate start to build up. I like you said lactate, not lactic acid. Evan, you've been listening to the podcast. Uh, I could feel the lactate start to build up. However, I could nearly talk at a conversational pace the whole time. My heart rate, perceived effort, and legs all felt like running a 5K, but I wasn't breathing as rapid as during a 5k. Does this mean I need to bump up the speed? 
I can't even get out a word during this test with my breathing. So I would say, yeah, yeah, I need to work harder because that's going to go on me as quick as anything. How about you? I sound worse on the treadmill challenge than I do in a 5K race. Me too. Earlier too. Me too. So, so I think maybe you got more in the tank, brother. It might have just been lactic shock. Like you might not be used to that and it hits you and it burned and you're nauseous off it, but you tolerate it better in the future. Your tolerance just might have been low. That's when you like, you probably didn't warm up well at 15%. Like if I'm going to do a 15, 15 test, I'm doing like three by 60 seconds hard with some recovery in between to build that lactate up in the legs, get some hard effort in before. So it's not a shock to the system. Uh, and that way you're going to handle that filling up feeling of the legs better. Mm-hmm. Um, my guess is that would have helped him a ton. I agree. Uh, let's see here. Chris Stiles. We're almost there, folks. It's going to be a long training Tuesday, but it's good. Um, Chris Stiles says, what's your, what's your opinions on base building stage with a weighted vest? Assuming I keep my heart rate in the right zone, would this be beneficial or am I adding to, uh, too much of a beating on my body? Would love to hear your thoughts. He's newer to the OCR and fitness world, he says, and our podcast has been the absolute best training information available out there. So he's newer, may I remind you as well. That's just- um, I'll repeat what I always say. I don't see any issue with adding it in for incline trainer work. If you're running uphill, add some in but it's a variable that's hard to account for what it's going to do to your body. I mm-hmm. think it's a tool to add in once you're already comfortable with your fitness. Benefit doesn't outweigh the cost, in my opinion. I don't think so. And if you're going to do it, only go up. No flat work, no downhill work. If you have a sterile environment, not even like a ski hill, then you have to take it off, put it on, like it's not going to work. You have a treadmill and you're going up. Uh, that's the only option. And honestly, I think the benefit is small. I will say that I plan on using it for uphill intervals this year. Okay. On a treadmill. And that is exclusively it. In small doses. Yes. On a well-trained body who's been doing this for years. Correct. Yeah. I think that's important. Gary Kirshner says, I have a hunting question for you, Kirk. I coach Gary. Oh, you do? Yeah. Well, Gary don't want to know what you think about this. He knows I'm I'm not someone who slaughters pets. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, please. (laughs) Do bow hunters hunt at night? I want to do some night trail runs, but it's bow hunting season in my woods. Your expertise is appreciated. He said, maybe this should be a running public uh, submission. He asked me on my personal okay. account. Uh, for all you out there, hunting is illegal after dark. It's highly illegal. So um, if you're out there with a headlamp on, nobody's going to be flinging arrows at you or thinking you're a, a deer. Deer do not wear reflective material. They do not. So it's highly illegal to hunt at night. That's called poaching. And you should report those bad, bad people. Why is that? Um, unfair advantage. I mean, yeah, animals are mostly nocturnal and creatures of the night for one. And so it's, I would say unfair. Why? Um, it wouldn't be, would it be the opposite? Um, two, if they're nocturnal. Wouldn't they have the advantage at night? But they're also out and about moving more. Like for example, like the raccoons go and climb into trees and hide in holes until nighttime. You're not even gonna find them or see them. Deer go bed in the thickest, crappiest, junkiest cover where you're gonna have a really hard time finding them until they get up and start moving around. Yeah. The creatures of edges of day and night. Um, but and then the the safety aspect of hunting things in the dark is probably quite prevalent as well. Makes sense. So, anyways, run in the dark, go nuts, don't trip over roots, wear a good headlamp like the nog. Which, by the way. That Nog headlamp is dope. You like it? Yeah. Bracken said, hey, I bought this headlamp and I got all jealous. And I, while talking to him, just bought bought it on Amazon. It came in. That Nog is like really, really nice. Comfortable. The functions are great. It's super bright. It was a great buy. I used it for the last hour and a half of that Ultra because the sun went down. And I forgot the button, what to do to turn on it full setting. Oh. You have to do something to hit full setting on. 
Oh, uh, yeah, I don't know that. So I did it at the second setting and it worked fine, but I wanted a little bit more brightness. Comfortable though. It's great. Uh, Ryan Lister says, how can you tell or find out if your leg muscles are imbalanced? And I don't mean left and right leg so much as I mean the back and the front of your legs. For example, I do a lot more deadlifts than any other leg exercise, mainly because it's what I like the most. Is there a way to tell if I'm developing the back of my legs more than the front in a bad way? We never get this question front to back. I've never been asked that. Me either, which I kind of like it. What do you think? Um, well, here's the thing. Nine times out of 10, when you see an explosive athlete pull a lower leg muscle, it's a hamstring, not a quad. Um, a quad uh, inherently is stronger than your hamstrings as far as raw power production and ab ability. So sometimes I'm more significantly more worried about a quad dominant athlete than a hamstring dominant athlete. Um, I think the rear chain, the rear chain is weaker than the front chain it, it, as far as power goes. So um, in that sense, I think there's going to be imbalance. I think the athlete who neglects the rear chain is at more of um, a risk of something bad happening or having an imbalance, just hearing you do a bunch of deadlifts and you love them. Um, your quads are getting so much pounding with your running and so much pounding with anything else that I I'm not too worried about it, to be honest. Um, you're going to have a discrepancy though. There's no way they're going to be completely even on the, on the power or strength scale. So I would just probably like not worry about it. As long as you're doing rear chain movements, um, you're not going to probably pull a quad on a run, maybe strain some weird tweak, but the hamstrings are where you're going to degrade for sure before your quads. Mm -hmm. So keep the rear chain strong. That's all I have to say to that. Yeah. I've, I've rarely ever seen someone that I thought, man, are their front of their legs underdeveloped compared to their back. Mm -hmm. So exactly. rest assured that you're probably more bulletproof than most people. Unless you are feeling the issue at the end of runs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're one who's doing hill work and you feel those quads just fill up so quick or you lose a lot of speed or power there, maybe it would pay off to do a little more work there. But, um, we got two more questions. Scott Zanini, y'all started to touch on it. It's two y'alls. Y'all started to touch on it a previous podcast, but the answer was unclear. When tracking recovery runs by heart rate, do you use the average or the peak of the run as your target? Yes. <laughs> okay. Peak. I set my hard limit and I don't let myself exceed that peak. And speaking of y'alls, he's a, he's a North Carolina guy. Scott, okay. Lisa's been checking out his, his home rentals he does and taking some tips and tricks from him. Oh, nice. So you were saying? So let's say 145 is my is what I want to do um, for my hard cap, and I want to average 140. So I do both. So it's like, all right, I'm going to try to stay the run. I want to average 140. So I'll probably start in the 30s and move up into the low to mid 40s, but I have a hard cap at 145. Yeah. I, I, I usually... Um... I would say the progression is typically pretty normal. I start lower and end a little higher, but you, you kind of understand where you're going to end up after that. Right. But I will say um, you do need to watch the peaks. I think the main thing is like, if you got like a 400 meter climb in the middle of your recovery run, like you're going to want to watch your heart rate, make sure you keep it in check. Even if that means power hiking, that's fine. But both is both is the right answer. Yeah. And it's, yeah, why, it's why we lower our heart rate down. If we know our aerobic thresholds, one from, you know, for me, 153, then 145 is my daily hard cap. Because mm. if I accidentally go over that a little bit, I'm still safe. Here's a side question that says, does Garmin have the ability to change heart rate from your current reading to the average for the run you are on? I believe Like so. in real time? Yeah. You have to set it up in advance, though, on, on your data pages. You have to choose average heart rate. Yeah, my Nordic track when I'm running on it displays real time, like my current and then my average is all it always tells me. I'm sure there's a way. I don't yep. know how, though. Yep. On, on data screens, you got to choose it. You'll have to do your own research there, Zanini. Last question from Jano. 
Jano says, why exactly is napping important for athletes and what are the benefits? Well, when you fall asleep, your body naturally releases HGH, which is human growth hormone. It's a miracle repair drug in our body. And it's one of the most powerful synthetic drugs that people dope with. And so mm. every time you sleep, you get natural doping. And so just right off the bat, if you want to give yourself some legal cheating, sleep more. Hmm. I mean, my answer is, uh, aside from like, oh, I'm resetting my mental fatigue from the day, which can allow you to put a little more fortitude towards tasks or workouts. Um, it pretty much all comes down to hormone production. Sleeping and naps come down to hormone production. Um, and it's also like, if you're going to talk about like, just like relaxing the entire body and taking the time to like completely decompress, like deload your body from like gravity and standing and moving and deload the spine and the joints, there's got to be some benefit to that. Just like completely letting go of all tension. Um, I have to imagine there's some science behind that as well, but the main deal is hormone production, brother. And those hormones are big drivers. Look at people with hormone deficiencies or problems. Um, they can really struggle with energy levels and to make sure those cups are filled, uh, nap will do the trick. Even 20 minutes, I, the studies will show, do some research on it. It's pretty powerful. Actually. The sleep or the recovery cycle happens primarily when you sleep. People always talk about, well, I have my eating window and I got to take care of that because I can get right to recovering and, and no. you're recovering, but you're not really recovering until you fall asleep. Uh, when my sister was on the national team at the Olympic training center, every workout they finished, they had mandated naps because the Olympic Training Center understood that the moment you fall asleep, you recover. And the moment you get done with your workout, you need to recover. So they would have to eat and be asleep within 30 to 45 minutes. Mandatory nap time for adults. I like it. I mean, they weren't adults. They were 13 to 18 year old kids. Oh, they were younger. We need to move to Mexico and get our little siesta that we'd all be better athletes. Yeah. So anyways, most powerful tool you can take legally is sleep. Do it. 100%. Um, that... Brackenstein is our last question, almost a two-hour Q&A. I'm going to edit this baby down, pare it down a little bit. Um, got some good episodes and some good interviews coming up, don't we? We have three lined up, which is better than we usually have lined up. <laughs> and I'm excited about all three. Two of the three I'm extremely excited about. The other one I'm just very excited about. Who? Are you going to tell the people who which is which? I don't like saying it beforehand because if something comes up schedule wise, which has been known to happen, I don't want to. I don't want to have to eat my words. Yeah, we got to underpromise and overdeliver here. All right, folks. Well, I got nothing else to add. Thank you for your questions. Uh, keep sending them in. We just screenshot them and get to them. I know some of you had to wait well over a month to get your questions answered, um, but we'll do one of these every four to six weeks. So keep them coming in. We appreciate them. Kirk, I'm off to hit the treadmill. Good luck. Thank you.